What's up, guys? Welcome to a brand new episode of DC and RC. I'm Daniel Cormier. That is my credentialed partner, 2023 Sports Emmy winner, Ryan Clark. Oh, he also won a Super Bowl. We are happy that you guys are joining us once again today on the show. Ryan and I will be joined by Megan O'Levy, the reporter from the UFC, one of the greatest minds in all of mixed martial arts. Yes. We will have a co-main event discussion about this weekend. And as always, we tap in or we tap out. RC, tell me what part of the world are you in today? There was a, there was a cartoon called Where in the World is Carmen San Diego? Carmen San Diego was the bad guy come to find out. I had no idea. But where's Wait, Ryan Carmen Clark? San Diego was the bad guy? I never Carmen knew San that, Diego bro. Carmen was the bad guy, bro. She was the Shut bad up. guy. I swear was to God. Was he trying to find her because no he needed idea. to put her in jail? No idea. She was um, on the run, my Notre guy. Dame. My guy, she was on the run the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm on the run sometimes. Nah, man, we're at Notre Dame today. Uh, we actually just walked around the school uh, with the pivot with um, Marcus Freeman, the football head coach. Yes. And we're going to present yes. to the team later on today and talk to some of their players just about – being in the NFL and, you know, transitioning from college to that to then post-career and manhood, business venture. So just any type of wisdom that we can share with these young, with these young men yeah. is what we're going to do today. Yeah, Marcus Freeman, a great college football coach. Notre Dame, the yes. oldest tradition. Let me tell you something. Very rarely can a school be so old and still look and want to feel old and be as prestigious as Notre Dame yes. because they have not changed anything right. since it started. We, we, I actually asked them today. I said, look, man, like these kids want cool stuff now, right? They they, they want the, the, the Twitter videos and the IG videos and they want to see the locker room certain way and the weight rooms. And he said that it's about being able to have the tradition of Notre Dame and keep the people who want to yeah. be a part of that tradition, the esteemed alum from this school, but also something that the kids see a little bit of the shine like on that helmet they see the shine in the program and yeah. want to be a part of it but the one thing that had no shine this weekend dc was uh. your friends the ufc judges now dc oh we've God. been here over and over again <laughs> in the main event with kai kyra france and amir albalzi we had a fight that was extremely close we expected it to be yeah. that way, especially with the mirror now ascending. Kai Kyra France is a guy who we often see as a championship contender. The fight was close. It was eventually, or it was judged to be a win for Amir, but a lot of people have disputed that. Many people think Kai Kyra France won the fight, especially his friend and teammate, Israel Adesanya. From the side of the octagon, DC, if you're sitting with the judge's view, how difficult is such a close fight with no one really taking total control of it to score? You know, that is that is hard to because I'm I don't like that the judging on so many occasions gets messed up. But for me, RC, I have to admit it's a tough job. It's a very tough job right. because you're sitting up there with no bias. Right, they're up there supposed to be with no bias. They're not there. They don't care who mm -hmm. win the fight. Or they're not supposed to care who win the fight. They don't have the numbers in front of them. All they're doing is watching that fight from one point inside the octagon. It's not like Mike Bell or Chris Lee move sides of the octagon. They sit in that same spot and they have to watch everything going on from that spot. So it's a very difficult job. But the reality is they got it wrong to me in the sense that 
there was a clear round in that fight, and that was round four and round five. Kai Car mm. France won those last two rounds. Turned All it the up. other yes. rounds were extremely yes. close. And if 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 Chris Lee would have scored round one for Amir Albazi and that got that won him the fight, no one would have been mad because round one was still mm-hmm. extremely close because no one really did anything. Yes. It was a matter of just kind of feeling each other out. That fight wouldn't have had no issue. But for him to score round four for Emir Albazi, mm. when Kai Carl France was really starting to step on the gas, is where the issue starts to arise. And that's my problem. Yep. My problem is when there's a clear round, how in the world are you watching a fight that's so completely different than everyone else? Yeah. Anybody with two eyes can see that Kai won that round. But we could also make a case, just like in the Henry Cejudo fight against Aljamain Sterling. Some people were like, I thought Henry won. You and I both thought Aljamain won it pretty clearly. But there was a section of people that thought he had done enough. Same with Albazi. So it's not like a robbery. I think the real issue, Ryan, is in the judge scoring that round that seems so clearly favoring the guy that lost the fight in the opposite direction. I thought the guy that scored round one for Carl France was right. I thought the guy that guy scored round four and five for Carl France, which gave him a 3-2 fight uh, on the scorecard. But that, to me, what I feel yeah. was the right scorecard. I think it was Mike Bell. I think Mike Bell got it right. And uh, the other two guys, look, look even look, Sal D'Amato. There's no problem with Sal D'Amato's card because you could have scored round one for Amir Albazi. The problem is mm-hmm. you cannot find a way to score round four for Amir Albazi. Yeah, I think that's the problem with Chris Lee's card is if you watch the fight, it was a feeling out process in round one. It seemed like both guys just truly respected one another. They wanted to approach it in a smart manner. And they also understood they had five rounds. But it looked like in round four and five, just from an output and an intensity level, Kai Kyra France mm-hmm. stepped it up. Kai Kyra France put his foot on the gas. And I believe he won both of those rounds decisively. And here's where people, in my opinion, get judging messed up. They look at judging the whole fight as if we're in a street fight outside of our house. And it's that, oh, no, like we saw Ryan. Ryan dominated most of the fight. That's not just how it works, right? You have to win rounds. And rounds are going to be 10-9 unless you dominate and you get a 10-8. It was obvious that round four and five were were Kai Kyra France rounds. And so when a guy like a DC, a former fighter, a former two-division champ, a Hall of Famer looks at that and says, how do you give round four to a fighter other than Kai Kyra France, I think that's where the issue comes in. And to me, it's not, I don't have a problem with the mere winning. I have a problem with the mere winning if we're going by the true scoring of each round, which in all honesty, none yes. of us can say that that fight in round four or five was to anybody but Kai Kyra France. Yeah, absolutely. And and like I said, RC, if you gave Amir Albazi round one, it was feeling out. Albazi landed a couple big shots, not many, but yep. neither did Car France. I remember there have been a couple fights where we've watched them, Ryan, and you go, well, you have to judge something, but they're not giving you much to judge. That's kind of what round one was between these guys, but I felt like Car France had done just enough to eke out that round. Round three, Amir Albazi had a lot of control on the ground. He did good. I thought he won that round. Round two, I thought he won round two. It felt good giving him those two middle rounds. But as he started to slow, it felt like Car France really did pick it up, and I thought he won the fight. But at the end of the day, I don't 
I don't feel like it was a, a highway robbery, right, RC? I feel like it was a bad decision. But I think the bad decision boils down to one judge scoring the wrong round for the wrong fighter. That was it. Mm. Everything else was pretty yeah. unified outside of him yeah. scoring that fourth round for Amir Albazi. But everything else was pretty uniform in regard to the scoring. And you knew it would be a close fight. You knew it would be tough. You knew both of these guys had power. And you knew that both of these guys were very good. I think what's sad about this, RC, is that in, in, in the bad decision, it takes away from what Amir Albazi did. And that's him showing yes. he can compete at the highest level in his division. Yeah, and it was like you got an opportunity to fight a top three fighter in the 125 pound division. And he looked every bit the part of belonging. But when the scoring goes the way that it does, and it's such an immediate outcry from fans, from former fighters, even someone like Dana White saying something about the scoring. I think yeah. that's where the problem comes in. We have a great main event coming up in UFC 289 with Amanda Nunes facing Irene Eldana. And who else better to come in and talk about it than super all-everything reporter Megan O'Leavy. And I can't <laughs> wait to see what Megan has on this weekend because she is always fly. Megan, what's up? Welcome to DC and RC. Thank you. It's my first time, and I have to say, I'm just trying to keep up with you in terms of the fashion, RC. That, that's all I can do. <laughs> Well, it's just, listen, it's just me, you, and Jared Leto that can wear a lavender suit. That's it. We're the only three in the world. Exactly. Exactly. It's the three amigos. I mean, could, I mean, could we please stop this? I mean, could we please stop this? Could we please stop this? This is a fight show, not a fashion show. Y'all mad? Just wear anything. It's fine. Just show up to work. What's up, Megs? How, how you doing? I'm great. How are you, DC? I'm great. Megan, so this weekend we head up to Vancouver for UFC 289. We get to witness again the greatest female fighter of all time. As you are yeah. preparing for another Amanda Nunes event, what's the mindset? Because the reality is we have to build, right? We have to build and prepare ourselves mm. to try to do justice to one of the greatest fighters this sport has ever seen every time she steps into the octagon. Like, what's the process as you're starting to prepare for the queen of the octagon making her return. You know, I think this one is actually a little bit easier to prepare for in terms of Amanda's side, because she seems to have this genuine excitement about having a new opponent. I had spoken to her in Miami when the original matchup with Juliana was made and she was almost disappointed. She said, you know, I thought I was going to fight Aldana. It was sort of offered to me and then it got taken away. And she not that she wasn't going to be motivated to fight Giuliani yet again, but it seemed like she was a little disheartened that she wasn't facing a new opponent. So for this particular fight, she's been so eager to get back in the octagon and face someone different, prepare for someone new, a different skill set, somebody whose heart, you know, is the size of her home country. And I think in terms of Amanda, that gives her maybe like more engaging answers during our fighter meetings and the lead up interviews to this fight, because she is really, really excited to face a different person inside the octagon this time around. You know, Megan, you mentioned what it is for Amanda to be excited. We saw the two bouts versus Juliana Pena. Now she has Irene Odanya. Coming into so many Amanda Nunes fights, I've basically felt like there were, there were, foregone conclusions. But we just saw Alexa Grasso beat Valentina Shevchenko. 
is having seen that recently, also Juliana Pena finding a way to beat Amanda Nunes, does that have any buzz coming into this fight as how people are perceiving the challenger's chances to unseat the greatest fighter of all time in women's MMA? No, I absolutely think it does. I mean, from Irene herself, when we sat down and talked about this matchup, she spoke so much about how Alexa's performance and preparation have motivated her. They consider each other sisters. Mm. And she said the fact that she saw what she was doing in their gym in Guadalajara really pay off in the fight. Exactly what she trained for happened. And that is what allowed her to win that world title against a dominant force in Valentina Shevchenko. I mean, I think for Irene, that is one of the biggest, if not the biggest motivators. She saw it happen in her own gym with someone she considers a sister. So why can't it happen? You know, Megan, there are, there are a couple factors going into this fight that I kind of want you to touch on. One, how important is it and how much momentum do the Mexican fighters have now with Yair holding the interim title, yeah. with Grasso being the champion, and with Moreno being the champion? That's my first one. But Megan, I also have this one as a question. Yesterday I was on a meeting, and they told me that the last time Irene has actually made 135 was way back in 2020. She's been fighting up. She's been fighting at catch weights. How difficult is it going to be for her to get all the way down to scratch weight and then fight a champion like Amanda Nunes? You know, DC, I'm glad you brought that up because the weight is a vital component to this. You know, her last fight against Macy Chasson was not at, you know, 135. Um, actually, neither was Yana Santos. So to be able to make not just, you know, the 136 cutoff, but for a championship fight to make scratch, you have to make 135. Um, I do think she's done thing diff things differently in this camp. She's also had a lot of time to let injuries heal, which I believe was sort of getting in the way of her being able to shed all the weight that she needed to. But I really think she's a professional and she will not allow anything to stand in her way of getting that world title. But, you know, the UFC Performance Institute has a tremendous team that helps all of our athletes weeks and weeks and weeks before fight week, as well as fight week, make sure that they are doing everything they can to make weight and make weight healthy. Um, so I hope that she's utilizing their services, but that is a huge factor in this one. Not only how will she make weight, but how will she feel after she does successfully make weight? But then you brought up, you know, the heart of the Mexican fighters. And that was, again, another huge talking point in my interview with her. In fact, um, as you guys will see in this next clip, she believes that her heart is her biggest weapon in this matchup with the greatest of all time, Amanda Nunes. Just to bring that Mexican heart, that Mexican heat to the octagon that night and to stay focused and just to go with, with the flow and, and I have nothing to lose. She truly believes that she has nothing to lose here. And when I asked her, you know, what's more important, the belt or beating the greatest ever? And she immediately said beating the greatest ever. But I think she has really good examples in Brandon Moreno, Alexa Grasso, Yair Rodriguez, like you mentioned, Daniel of what can be done and why, you know, as a culture, you know, fighting is in their blood. And she truly believes that seeing all these examples in front of her will just lead to her own success come Saturday night. Megan, I think the first thing I want to mention is that everybody got the leather pants memo 
for that interview. I think I love the way that both of you ladies <laughs> coordinated. Exactly. You know, when, when, when you sit with when you sit with someone and you're that close to them and you're getting to ask questions about someone like Amanda Nunes, you can feel a, a vibe from them. You can get whether or not they're talking themselves up to feel like they could compete in the fight or whether they truly believe what they're saying about someone as dominant as Amanda Nunes. I remember listening to Cyril Gaon talk about fighting the GOAT, and it was so much admiration. When you listen to her talk about Amanda Nunes, do you get the feeling that she truly believes that she can go out and unseat the greatest of all time, or is she kind of just whistling in the wind? No, it's a great point, and we do see that, but I don't see that here with Irene, and I'll tell you why. She's been preparing for Amanda for years. Let's not forget that this mm. matchup was actually made just a few weeks ago. So it wasn't like, you know, she's had this 16 week training camp. She was supposed to be fighting Raquel Pennington. But then when Juliana uh, fell out, she was ready for the opportunity. And when we kind of spoke about all that, she wasn't overwhelmed at all because she said, I've been looking at Amanda for years. Everything I have done in the mm. gym, yes, is for my opponents and for my own personal growth. But with the end goal in mind that I will be facing Amanda Nunes one day and I will be the one to defeat her. You know, Megan, it's a massive fight anytime we get to watch Amanda Nunes fight. She's fighting Irene, Irene Aldana. You know, the last time we saw her fight a striker of this caliber was Jermaine Durandamy, and she wrestled the entire time. But Amanda has not only changed camps a couple fights ago, now she has essentially broken all ties with the American top team. There is not a coach anymore inside the Amanda Nunes camp. Does that play a factor in her preparation as she gets ready for Saturday night? You know, I don't think that it does because Amanda has great training partners around her. She has her wife and training partner um, that will never, ever let her get away with, you know, a bad round or a bad sparring session or a bad training session. You know, Nina really holds her accountable probably more than any others will. And I think she's found what works for her. You and I know that Amanda's pretty private. She's pretty low key about things. She's got training partners that she trusts. She also really takes a lot into consideration about building women's MMA and the next generation of fighters. And I think she has found the perfect recipe for her and her family. She can have her daughter in the gym with her. You know, that is a huge motivator to see Reagan running around on the mats. And, you know, we've seen her be successful with this formula before. And I really do think that maybe it's not right for all athletes, but I do think that Amanda has found what is right for her on both a personal and professional level. And we know that those two have to go hand in hand. Megan, we are certainly looking forward to this main event this weekend and any opportunity to see Amanda Nunes in the octagon is exciting for UFC fans. But the ultimate fighter is going on right now with head coach Conor McGregor and Michael Chandler. You recently had an opportunity to sit down with Conor. Let's see a little snippet from that interview. Not only just a return, Megan, the greatest return in combat sports, this is going to be, you know, uh, I'm, I'm going to kick this guy in the head. He's just tailor-made for being kicked all over the place. And that's what I'm aiming for. I'm aiming to wrap this steel bar around, around uh, the opponent. And you're going to see a visual of the leg hanging off. And then you're going to see a visual of a head hanging off, you know? So I'm excited for that and motivated for that. 
steady making my way towards it. <laughs> hey, Megan, you got an opportunity to be present for Conor McGregor's Roy Kent, Ted Lasso sort of description of what he's going to do <laughs> to Michael Chandler. What was that interaction with Conor like for you? You know, it was great. Connor and I have a history together of doing these interviews. And I think that you just have to meet Connor where he is. And he was really taking, you know, this show with, you know, as much positivity as he could, you know, he likes the coaching role, not just for what he believes he can do for the future, which in that interview, he really talks about, you know, his desire to give back, but also for what it does for him. He said, you know, it kind of puts me back into the sport. It makes me a better mixed martial artist. He started his MMA career, actually teaching a class at John Kavanaugh's gym. And he said, you know, that was really important to me to immerse myself um, and continue to teach people. And then it opened my eyes to different things. And that's, I think, what he got there. He, um, we've seen lots of interviews from him as of late, but that one I, I believe was, was great. It was actually almost 30 minutes. So hopefully we'll be able to re release more of it than what you guys have seen so far. But he seems like he's in a really good place. Um, very motivated. And the, the comeback is really what is driving him right now prove to the world that he can have the significant injury and a loss and come back even better than yeah. ever and prove to the world, Hey, remember that broken leg? Well, now look at me. I'm kicking Chandler's head off with it. Wow. Hey, RC before I, Hey, Megan, thank you for joining us. RC, that girl. Good. Hey, she good. RC. Oh, she the she's best. good now. Hey, <laughs> she's, she's really good. Oh, she good. Now it's RC. The reason Let me we tell can't you have an event That's without her. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's the reason oh, she on the NFL sideline. She doing all kind of stuff. That girl's good, man. Megan, yeah. thank you for joining us. Can't wait to see you this <laughs> thank weekend. Thank you, Megan. Love you guys. See you later. <laughs> Hi, it's Mike Greenberg letting you know ESPN Bet is ready to take you through all the biggest sports moments this spring. The official sports book of ESPN has exclusive offers and markets from Scott Van Pelt, Stephen A. Smith, and me, plus many more. From the playoff intensity to finally getting out to the ballpark, there's no better time for sports fans. Sign up today. New users get a bet reset up to $1,000 in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. Download ESPN Bet today. What a play. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. See app for details. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there's no competition. Right now, get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Go to jetspizza.com to learn more and find a location near you. Again, try Jets' signature eight-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Jets Pizza. Better because it has to be. RC, RC, RC. Look, the main event is good, uh, but the co-main event is also good. But before we get to the co-main event, I had a question for you, bro. I just, I, I've, people have made this reference, and every time people make the reference, somebody laughs. And I just don't get it. Who is Ted Lasso, man? Who is Ted Lasso, bro? bro? I've heard that reference so, twice. Like, who is that? So, <laughs> so Ted Lasso is Ted Lasso is a show on Apple Plus, and it's about a football coach, an American football coach, who goes across the pond to coach a soccer team, right? European, European mm. football. But he only gets the job because the the owner of the team 
is the ex-wife of someone who cheated on her. So she wants to run the team into oh. the dirt because it's the most important thing to the ex-husband. But Ted Lasso is like country and kind of aloof, but he's super <laughs> nice and he still drops gems. Bro, it's one of the okay. best shows I've ever seen. It's only three seasons. It's over now. They ended it very abruptly. I don't know why, but you should watch it. But before you watch Ted Lasso, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get prepared okay. for Charles Oliveira and Benil Dariush. This is the co-main event. And this okay. is a fight that if it's made before your your boy Islam Mahachev comes and spoils the show, this is a championship bout. Both of these fighters are trying to put themselves one fight away from seeing Islam Mahachev. And it's going to be an absolute barn, barn burner. And it's also going to be strategically one of the best matchups that we could see in this division. When you look at these two fighters, DC, what is on the line for Dubronx and Benil Darius this weekend in Vancouver? I think, I think it's title fight for both, RC. I think... If Charles Oliveira wins, I think that he would find himself back in the championship opportunity because of the title run that he had. And for Benil Dariush, no one is more deserving. This guy has won eight in a row in one of the toughest divisions in the UFC, and he has gotten better every time we watch him step into the octagon. But Benil Dariush has become fun. Benil Dariush takes chances. Benil Dariush is one of those guys that really does lay it all on the line in one of the nicest human beings you have ever met in your entire life, bro. But Neil is a guy that walks up to you with a smile. He walks away with you smiling because he just makes you feel better even about yourself when you're done talking to him. But this weekend, he has a fight against a guy in Charles Oliveira who would seem to match up with him as perfect mm -hmm. as you could imagine. Because as you said, it's going to be strategic also because... Dariush is a tremendous grappler. He's a black belt. Charles Oliveira is the most accomplished submission artist in UFC history. But Neil Dariush, while he can strike and he, he possesses knockout power, he isn't as crisp. He isn't as tight as Charles Oliveira in the stand-up. This, this fight has so many questions on the Dariush side, but it also has questions on the Oliveira side. Because how does Oliveira bounce back from the loss to Islam Makhachev? One of Oliveira's biggest uh, advantages, I believe, was when he was fighting guys like Michael Chandler, Dustin Poirier, Justin Gaethje, they would knock him down, but they wouldn't follow him to the ground because it was too dangerous. He's so good in the jujitsu. Well, you saw Islam follow him to the ground, and Islam actually submitted him. Benil Daryush is that too. Benil Daryush will not be afraid to follow him to the ground. So how does Oliveira approach this fight in a more controlled way to where he doesn't get himself hurt and then trying to... Uh, pull Dariush into some sort of trap. This is a phenomenal matchup, man. And this one here is going to be, or at least I can predict that this should be the fight of the night come this weekend, man. This is a great matchup. You know, I, I think it's the fight of the night. And this is a fight that Benil Dariush has been waiting on. Benil Dariush has been auditioning for in his last few fights in the UFC, which has been, which have been dominant by anyone's imagination or measure. The thing I want to see about Charles Oliveira is like Charles got, like you said, Benil started to take risk. Charles got risky too. When you look at going toe to toe with Justin Gaethje and striking, J Dustin Poirier in the same, Michael Chandler having him dropped. And 
under some ground and pound in round one and then coming out and showing that toughness and that willingness to strike again, eventually getting Dustin Poirier's back, Justin Gaethje's back, also putting Michael Chandler out with the knockout. What happens when he gets into adversity against Benil Dariush? Is he willing to strike with Benil Dariush maybe more than he was those other guys because we don't necessarily see Benil in that category when you're talking about the Gaethje's, the Poirier's, and the Chandler's. But he got reckless against Islam Mahachev, DC. If you think about when he was dropped and eventually submitted, he was trying a risky strike. He goes airborne against Islam, and Islam is able to catch him with the hook. What did Charles Oliveira tweak for this fight? He was kind of, and um, my homeboy, who's a coach in the NFL, uses this phrase often when he talks about Darrell Revis in 2009. Charles Oliveira was walking on water for a few fights. That no matter what he did, he found a way to win. Now yeah. that that mystique is gone and he's fighting a fighter that is as tactical, as skilled, as tested as Benil Dariush is, what has Charles Oliveira done to keep himself at the top of the game against a fighter as hungry as Benil is? Here would be my question for you, DC. Looking at the Islam Mahachev fight and the matchup against Benil Dariush, if you're coaching Charles Oliveira, what are some things you're asking him to tweak or focus on in order to take advantage of Benil and some of his deficiencies? You know what I'm doing, RC? I'm asking him to be a little bit safer. But I'm also asking him not to forget what made him that guy. Because you remember every fight, yep. Michael Chandler, Justin Gaethje, they would always say that we're going to remind Charles Oliveira he's that kid that used to quit when he was at 145. But Oliveira would always just beat him up and then prove that he wasn't that same guy. He has to be a little more uh, controlled, but he also needs to remind himself, even if he gets hurt, he can still get up and win. He can still get up and be dominant. Because over the course of that title run, we said it time and time again, this guy is going to probably lose at some point because all the risk will ultimately catch up to you. But boy, is it fun to watch Bronx while he is doing what he is doing, while he has broken down Dustin mm -hmm. Poirier in the way that he did, while he has done all these things that have made him so good. So take risk, be more measured, but don't forget what made you the dominant champion that you were when you reigned in the top of this division. Now, RC, when we think about Benil Dariush, He's won eight fights in a row. He is now yep. on the verge of earning a championship fight. But it's not just about earning a championship fight. You have to become the champion in order to be truly remembered. So that got us thinking mm -hmm. here at DC and RC. Why don't we list our top five fighters in the UFC's history who never held undisputed gold? Interim titles yep. are not counted in this list. So RC, I will give you the floor. Who are your top five fighters? who never held okay. undisputed UFC gold. So here's what normally happens too, right? When a guy is who we believe is championship level, there's normally someone in that place that they can't beat. So Tony Ferguson, right? Tony mm -hmm. Ferguson goes on yeah. this crazy streak, this win streak where he truly becomes the boogeyman. And then he gets an opportunity against Justin Gaethje to prove to the world that he is exactly who he says he says he was or who he's shown to be. And Justin Gaethje absolutely picks him apart. And then while picking him apart, he now goes on a losing streak that we've seen Tony Ferguson finish with the loss, I believe, to Nate Diaz last. And then at number two, I'm going to wait. 
I got it. I lost it. I got to get my, note, my, my list back up, Jake. Hold on. Interrupt. <laughs> Miracle Crow Cop. Yeah, at now, number four. Now, here's, like, yes. all I remember at four, I'm sorry, at number four, Miracle Crow Cop, all I remember is the head kicks, bro. Like, in... He's yeah. one of those fighters, kind of like Fedor to me, where I didn't get to see all of who he was. By the time he got to UFC, he was on the back end of his career, and we were still living off the legend of Miracle, and we never got to see it come to fruition in the UFC. And number three, I'm going to go Uriah Faber. And all I have for him is two mm -hmm. words when it started. Jose Aldo. You know, like you were, you were fighting uh, against or you were fighting at a time where he was ultimately dominant. And I thought Uriah Favor had opportunities. I believe he lost to TJ uh, Dillashaw as well. I just think that Uriah Favor was a fighter who was always that caliber, but never could get over the hump. Uh, Vanderlei Silva, Silva, you know, I would love when the Axe Murderer yeah, would like get that. up, he'd give you all this, you know, at number two. Um, when he came over, it was a time where I felt like the, the light heavyweight division was packed with killers. It wasn't necessarily all of the names we saw when John Jones was kind, was making that ascension. It wasn't the who's who of names and opportunity, but it was fighters who got in the octagon and got straight down to business. He was one of those guys, and I still remember the knockout by Quentin Rampage Jackson that was absolutely vicious when he laid out Vanderlei Silva. And at number one, I don't know how we got to that, at number one, I'm gonna go with Dan Henderson. Bro, that overhand right is legendary. Uh, his ability to, to fight through adversity, to deal with toughness, his ground game, wrestling. I thought that Dan Henderson was a guy who would eventually and finally get over the hump, and it just never happened. RC, that's a great list. You know, Vanderlei Silva was right on the cusp, but he also had a fight style that you knew eventually would catch up to him, right? And when he got to the yeah. UFC, it started to catch up to him, just winging punches, that that old shooter box style just caught up to him in the UFC. All right, RC, that's a great list. But for me, I'm going to start here. At number five, I had uh, Alexander Gustafson. He wasn't on the, on the, the, the list of names, but... RC, how no. could you ever be closer? He lost a split decision to John Jones, and he lost a split decision to me, right? So how in the world yeah. could you? And he was also in another number one contenders fight against Anthony Johnson in Sweden. The dude fought Jones to the closest fight ever. He fought me to a very, yeah. very close fight in Houston. So close to becoming the light heavyweight champion at a time where you had two dominant champions. At number four, I got Gray Maynard. Do you remember Gray Maynard and Frankie Edgar's series yes, of do. championship fights? Yes. Gray Maynard was a guy <laughs> yes. that for a long time was undefeated, NCAA, All-American wrestling. He might not have been as sexy a guy to the UFC masses, but he was right on the verge. He dropped Frankie Edgar four times in one round, and Frankie somehow salvaged a draw. That's how good Frankie Edgar was to be able to fight himself back into that fight. At number three, I have... I'm letting that thing flip over, RC. Tony Ferguson, because I got to agree with you. He, here's the thing about Tony Ferguson. He he won the interim championship against Kevin Lee, Kevin Lee, but then he lost that interim title fight to Gaethje. Ultimately, he never got to Habib. But at one point, he had won 12 yeah. fights in a row in the lightweight division. At number two, I got your boy Uriah Faber. Dude had four UFC championship title fights. Dude, if you aren't one of the best fighters ever without winning the belt, how could you fight for the belt four times? He lost to Dominic yeah. Cruz. He lost to Dillashaw. He lost to Jose Aldo in all kinds of WEC 
and UFC championship fights in that. Number one, yes. I agree with you with Dan Henderson, pride middleweight, light heavyweight champion, also fought for the bite to the belt at UFC 0-3 there. Also fought Michael Bisping at an advanced age, Ryan, and lost a yeah. split decision yeah, in a fight that a lot of people thought that he won. So Dan Henderson for me and you. But RC, you know what time it is. It's time to tap in the tap out. We're having so much fun that we're running over our time. All right, guys. Saturday night, Jim Miller extended his own record of most wins and fights in UFC history. DC, tap in or tap out. Jim Miller is a future UFC Hall of Famer. You see, we had this conversation a while back, and it makes me feel bad, right? Because, look, RC believes. RC, I'm of the other side. I tap out, no. bro. I don't feel, RC, I don't feel like time served immediately puts you in the Hall of Fame. Look, he's got more wins than anyone else, but I love Jim Miller, and this makes it hard for me. But I just don't feel that time served puts you in the Hall of Fame. RC, there's an, there's an offensive lineman in the NFL right now that played 20 years. Is that guy going to the Hall of Fame just because he played 20 years? Doesn't work that way, RC. You have no, to have okay, accomplishments to go into the Hall of Fame. Okay, I agree with that. But he, but I tap in. Does does Jim Miller's Jim Miller's popularity and height is not what Cowboy Cerrone is? But Cowboy Cerrone is going to be a Hall of Famer. Is Cowboy has he already been announced or no? I can't even remember. But Cowboy I think Cerrone, Cerrone is might be going, going in this year. Yeah, I think he might be going in this year. He's a Hall of Famer, and so is Jim Miller. the The one thing about the UFC with it being new. As, a, as, as an organization is there's so many ways I think people are going to get in to the Hall of Fame. And I believe that Jim Miller will based on his amount of fights and his amount of wins. And the dude still has knockout power, which we saw on Saturday. But RC, R but RC, can you agree with me? Time served doesn't always mean you go into the Hall of Fame, right? Because you have lasting power? Yes. Because does Tom Brady go yes, into the Hall know, of Fame I, I, just because he played so long if he doesn't have all those championships? No. So your your debate would be someone like Andrew Whitworth in the NFL is what you're kind of telling. That's me. what I was talking about. A guy who plays. Yeah, yes. guy who's played 20 years. He's gone to a Super Bowl. He wasn't all pro at times in his career. Wasn't always thought as the most dominant or best. But the longevity puts him in the conversation. Does that mean he gets in? Here we go, Corporate Jake. Hi, guys. Logan Paul was seen grappling with Israel Adesanya and Alexander Volkanovsky and seemed to be able to hold his own. RC, tap in or tap out, Logan could succeed in MMA. A tap out. A tap out. What is and, and also what is success? You know, the <laughs> if I go if I go grapple with with Volk, he's not going to take advantage of me. Like Volk is not gonna just throw me around mm -hmm. the mat just to prove a point. He's gonna let me seem to hold my own. Now, you put Alexander Volkanovsky's livelihood on the line. And we're grappling. I'm going to be bent up like a pretzel screaming for DC to get him <laughs> off me. No, I tap all the way out. Hey. I tap out. RC, he, RC, if his livelihood on the line, that dude eating anybody alive because that dude is good. Yeah. I, I, I mean, he has yeah. a wrestling background, so he could potentially do better than most people that aren't professional mixed martial artists. But, I mean, what is success? It's all in what you measure success as, right, RC? So I'm going to tap out yeah. on that one. RC, I know you got to get going, my guy. I know you got to go and live in the beauty of Notre Dame University. So it's time it to rule, my brother. Here. Let's close this thing out. It is beautiful here. DC, Mabs, you want to say, bro, <laughs> every week I am 
privileged and honored to work with you, dog. The acceptance that you have given me and allowing me to grow on this show and have this sort of fun, I am so grateful. I'm glad we get to bring this to our fans every week on anywhere you get your podcast. Also, ESPN2, we're on at 12 a.m. Eastern. We love you guys. I'm RC. That's DC. He won two championships. I ain't win none. He's going to try to be nice to me before every show, but it's all about him. We out.